Welcome. You're listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. You can join us for virtual worship every Sunday at roswellpress.org. Thanks for listening. It is a joy to be in worship with you today, whether you are in the sanctuary or online. We are glad you're here. I also want to remind you that today from 4 to 6 p.m. outside the church, we have about a dozen Christmas trees that various ministries have set up. We're calling it the Advent Festival of Trees. I took a quick glance at one of them looks like a tree you might see somewhere in Latin America celebrating Christmas. I saw uh, a grizzly bear. Um, It was not real. Um, it's It's going to be exciting, so I invite you to go to the church website. You can hear all about it. Sign up. Uh, come this afternoon between four and six. Like most nonprofits in the country, we bring in a majority of our revenue in the fourth quarter. And I, while things and giving has been very strong this year, we want to finish the year strong. So if you have year-end giving to do, please remember Roswell Presbyterian Church in your giving plans. And also, if you haven't turned in your 2021 pledge, you can also do that. And you can do that uh, on the church website as you leave. There's baskets at the back of the sanctuary doors, or you can always send in um, a check or an envelope. Well, we are looking at our sermon series, Living Nativity, looking at the Advent story as the Gospel of Luke tells it. Last week, we looked at the opening few verses of the Gospel of Luke, and we looked at what might it look like for our story to be lived against the backdrop of what God has done in the story, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, we'll look at the next scene in the Advent story. So let us look at Luke 1, verses 5 through 20. This is how he begins. Listen for the word of the Lord. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord, but they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many to the people Many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a ready people prepared for the Lord. 
And Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we ask in the next few moments you might be our teacher, that you might show us how this story, your intervention in human history with Zachariah and Elizabeth working this great miracle, or might shine a light on our own lives, or it might open us up to something you might be calling us to do something new, something novel, a change to make, or that we might live the lives and become the people you have created and called us to be. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The great C.S. Lewis once said, people often prefer a familiar captivity to an unfamiliar freedom. People often prefer a familiar captivity to an unfamiliar freedom. Many of us know this feeling, don't we? Unfamiliarity can mean fear and danger at the new and the novel. About a month ago, I had the opportunity to go out to Arizona to see my family. And I had the opportunity to spend time with my seven-year-old nephew. It's been a while since I'd seen him, so I'd forgotten what a picky eater he is. The only food he would eat for dinner was a cheese quesadilla. I'm not kidding. Do you want taco? No thanks. Do you want lasagna? No thanks. Do you want sushi? Thai food? Indian food? No thanks. I'll take a cheese quesadilla. It was cracking me up. I mean, I love cheese quesadillas like the next guy, but the only thing you'll eat for dinner? I hope you don't have a problem with lactose. (laughs) It reminded me how often fear comes from unfamiliarity. It can prevent us from living the lives that what poet Mary Oliver calls our one wild and precious life. In our story today, we have three features. We have two people, we have their problem, and then they confront a predicament. First, the people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke writes, both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. They were righteous. They did the right thing. They followed all of the commandments and regulations of the Lord. You know these kinds of people. These kinds of people are good people. They pay their taxes on time. They check in on the homebound. They make meals for when people are ill. They tithe to the church, and they make sure to get their pledge in on time. I think Elizabeth and Zechariah were these kind of people. They were good 
people. Two of the best people I knew growing up were May and Jerry. We met them in church. They lived in our neighborhood. They were like my second grandparents. They would always remember my birthday and send me a birthday card. Jerry would always challenge me to ping pong games. He had all these old school tricks where he could spin the ball and make it go at 90 degree turns. Always beating me, never letting up. I remember May befriending this Muslim immigrant family from Iran, moved in across the street. She was hospitable, generous, kind. They led prayer groups and Bible studies at our church, but they didn't want the spotlight. They just wanted to be there for people. They were good people. But just because you're a good person doesn't keep misfortune from knocking at your door. For me and Jerry, this meant physical ailments. It meant cancer. It meant the death of a child. And just like Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were righteous, but still misfortune came knocking at their door. Luke writes, both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord, but they had no children. But they had no children. And here is the problem. Zechariah and Elizabeth were barren. They were righteous, but still misfortune had come knocking at their door. Over the years, one of the toughest issues I've seen couples struggle with is the struggle of infertility. Not being able to have a child when you desperately want it is so difficult, such a struggle for so many people. I bet there were many nights where Elizabeth and Zachariah went to bed in tears because they couldn't have children. There were probably nights when Zachariah and Elizabeth would break out into an argument blaming each other. I bet there were some nights they didn't want to go over to a friend's house because they didn't want to see their friend's kids playing in the yard. They were righteous, but still misfortune had come knocking at their door. There is a common human tendency to believe that people bring misfortune upon themselves. People often believe that moral failure is connected to physical misfortune. Now, sometimes it may be true. If you're always driving over the speed limit and you have the misfortune of receiving a speeding ticket, that's probably your fault. But not in this case. Luke tells us explicitly that they were righteous. They did all the right things. I want to drive this point home because it was... It is a popular misconception in our day, and it was in Jesus' day. Later in the Gospel of Luke, several people will raise this issue connecting, you know, physical misfortune with moral failure. In Luke 13, several people mention this atrocity that happened when Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea, had his soldiers kill a group of Israelite worshipers while they were worshiping. And the questioners seemed to want to know why this happened. Was it their fault? Did they do something wrong? Did they have some special sin? And Jesus says, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, he says. Then Jesus goes on to refer to this tragic accident where the Tower of Siloam had fallen on 18 people and killed them. 
And Jesus asks again a rhetorical question. Do you think that they, those people who had died, were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? He says, no, I tell you. Jesus says we should be very wary of connecting moral failure with physical misfortune. Many times I've talked to people who blame themselves for something that has happened. I have to say, this is not your fault. If God punished all of us as our sins deserved, we would all be in serious trouble. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Good and righteous people can still be barren. And Luke says, Zachariah and Elizabeth were righteous. But sometimes, even with the righteous, a problem can begin to define a person. And this is their predicament. The problem begins to define the person. When the angel comes, angel literally in Greek means messenger. When Gabriel says, Elizabeth will bear a son, Zechariah can't believe it. Barrenness has become a part of Zechariah's identity. It's essential to who he is. People know him as the barren guy. Now, some of you are a little suspicious about this claim, but look at this. The angel, Gabriel, says, God has heard Zechariah's prayer, and and now he's answering it. Luke writes in verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. He's been praying for this thing, and God does it, and he can't believe it. It's beginning to define him, his problem. And so he confronts a predicament. Will he stay rooted in the problem? Will he find his identity in the problem? Or will he step out into an unfamiliar freedom? The Bible is full of people who are reluctant to step out into an unfamiliar freedom. It's scary to step out into that kind of freedom, to let go and to step forward in faith. We are so often ensnared and held back by what African-American theologian Howard Thurman calls the three hounds of hell. Calls them my hates, my lies, and my fears. My hates, my lies, and my fears prevent us from becoming who God has created and called us to be. Probably the most prominent example in the Bible of this is when God calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt. For the past year, every Tuesday morning, I meet with a group of guys on Zoom, and we've been studying this book in Exodus. See, for 400 years, the Israelites were enslaved. They were in captivity in Egypt. And Exodus says they are suffering greatly, and God hears their cries. He hears their suffering. But the people enslaved, all they had ever known was slavery. All they had ever known was captivity. All their parents had known was captivity. All their their grandparents had known was slavery. All their great-grandparents had known was slavery for 400 years. And then God calls Moses to liberate the people. Finally, God has heard their cries of agony. And he's going to liberate them. He's going to set them free. But you should know, it's often easier to get the people out of Egypt than to get the Egypt out of the people. No sooner had they 
left Egypt, then they begin complaining that they're hungry, so God gives them manna. Then they begin to complain that they're thirsty, and God makes water flow from a rock. Then when Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments, they think he's gotten lost, and so they make a golden calf and begin worshiping it. They want to go back to Egypt. If only we were back in Egypt, they continue to say, for 40 years they wander in the wilderness. It's easier to get the people out of Egypt than Egypt out of the people. But even if you're in slavery, that doesn't make you a slave. I used to occasionally go out to breakfast with a young African-American couple and we would talk about life. I remember one time my friend Mark made this point to me when we were talking about the 400 years of slavery in America. He said, Jeff, you know, I never refer to those people as slaves. He says, rather, I choose to refer to them as people who were enslaved. He says, I don't want to make the mistake of finding their identity in their social position, but there needs to be a differentiation for their humanity apart from where they're at. This goes not just for people in slavery, but for anyone who is trapped by their social condition, the place they're at in life. You may wrestle with an addiction, but that doesn't make you fundamentally an addict. You may be a gambler, but that, and you may gamble, but it doesn't make you fundamentally a gambler. Who you are as a human being is separated from where you find yourself. You are differentiated from your problems. But it's going to take Zechariah a while to come to terms with this. And so the angel Gabriel says, you know what? I'm going to make you mute so you, don't, you can not talk and listen more to your wife for about nine months. Got to kind of come to terms with what it's going to mean to be a father now. You're going to need some faith to step into this unfamiliar freedom. I want to close with a profound moment that I witnessed 10 years ago. I'd been serving a church for a few years, and the senior pastor had become an important mentor in my life. One week I was there, and I was working in the office on a Friday, and so he called the staff who were there in the office around into the library and said, I have an announcement to make. He said, I want you to hear it from me first. On Sunday, in the worship services, I'm going to announce to the congregation that I'm an alcoholic. I was shocked. I had no idea, not even a suspicion. And I began to get very worried. I didn't know how the congregation would respond. Would they fire him? Would they hold it against him? Would it ruin his reputation? Was this such a good idea? The future was very unfamiliar. On Sunday at the 8.50 service, I was standing in the back. Before his sermon, he got up behind the pulpit. He said, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm seeking treatment and help, but I wanted you to know. And I held my breath. And what happened next blew me away. One by one, members of the congregation began to clap and to stand. They gave him a standing ovation. 
And for, that, for years after that moment, I have wondered why. Why did they respond in that way? And I think it's because that kind of courage that they saw demonstrated that Sunday morning is so rare. To step out from a familiar captivity and step into an unfamiliar freedom is a daring and courageous thing to do. And so I ask you this Sunday morning, how might God be calling you to step out of a familiar captivity and into an unfamiliar freedom? Maybe you need to let go of an addiction and seek help. Maybe you need to step out from being captive to old grievances, deep-seated anger, and step into an unfamiliar freedom. Maybe you're held captive by fear, fear of the unknown, and you need to find courage and step forward in, in faith into an unfamiliar freedom. Maybe you're stuck captive in a familiar rut. And you need to make a change. Let us have the courage to let go of our familiar captivities and step into the unfamiliar freedom that God calls us into. This is what it means to step into the living nativity. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you have come to set us free in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you might give us the strength, give us the faith. Help us to receive your grace and your call to become the people you have created and called us to be. We thank you for this great story that we are a part of. In your name we pray. Amen. been listening to the RPC Sermons podcast. Please let us know you're here by visiting roswellpress.org and signing our digital friendship register. May the grace and love of God be with you today and throughout the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.